Welcome to the Visions and Towns podcast. I am excited today. I'm with a good friend of mine. I've been trying to get her to come to the show. I've got a lot of friends I'm trying to get to the show, but it's not so easy. And she'll tell us a little bit about herself. But I'm glad that you've joined us because today we're going to touch on some little bit of awkward or difficult kind of conversation, you know, (laughs) topics to engage in. But hang in there and I hope you enjoy this. Thank you so much for choosing the Visions and Tones podcast. My guest today is none other than Chelsea La Rosa. Welcome, Charles. Thank you for having me, Tony. Wow. Um, so you use La Rosa or in all your documents? Yes. Legally, I'm La Rosa. The only place I'm not La Rosa is Facebook, and that's because I changed it on Facebook when I got married to mm-hmm. give it a little bit of a tryout, mm-hmm. and it was such a pain to change it and change it back that I just left it. Oh, nice. Okay. Right. So who is Chelsea? Who is Chelsea? Yeah. That's a great question. Chelsea's been figuring that out mm-hmm. a little bit as well. Look, I am um, an American-born, Italian, Polish, Irish, English, German, from immigrant families that moved to Australia in 2010 to pursue a dream and fell in love with Australia, and here we are. 12 years later. Right. Yeah. And within the 12 years, I think I met you after 10 years. You've been here, right? Yep. I met you probably about two years ago. Um, 2019. Mm-hmm. So it would be actually three years ago. About three years now. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do now? What are you doing? Right now, I am uh, a content and event manager at a marketing firm nice. in Newcastle. And that's been really fun and using some of the skills that I have in management and writing and content creation as well as managing events and projects Mm -hmm. uh, to help the business. So that's been really cool. Uh, currently getting a mini MBA in marketing as well. Amazing. Amazing. But do you have a very rich... um, experience in music and stuff. I do. Because I met you through music. Yes, that's right. So um, when we met in 2019, I came to the church that you were part of to Mm -hmm. be the creative pastor, creative director um, for that team. And I've grown up around music. Both of my parents are musicians. My dad's a professional musician. Yep. Amazing, amazing musician. And I've sung my whole life. I actually have my bachelor's degree in music performance as well as a bachelor's degree in psychology. Um, And I came to Australia to pursue the uh, worship music uh, program at the college that I was at in Mm -hmm, Sydney. mm -hmm. It was lovely actually meeting your family the other day. Had a chat with your dad and he was telling me a lot of productions that he worked on and a lot of drama musicians that he worked with. And I was just laughing. I was like, you should see your daughter when she's directing (laughs) something here. You know, you're very passionate and disciplined and you love quality. And and I could hear from your dad because your dad doesn't like metronomes and stuff like that. He's like, all that is crap. And I'm like, what? 
Yeah, he's like, it, you should just have an internal click that you you know. And I'm grateful for that because, you know, he used to actually put a metronome on mm -hmm. just to train me what different BPMs felt like and were. And um, there would be times that I would be on worship, leaders, worship leading or something, and I'd say to the MD, you know, don't put click on, I'm going to start the song. Uh -huh. And don't worry, I'll start it right on the correct BPM. And nine out of ten times, humble brag here, yeah. humble brag. <laughs> if you're an MD that I've worked with listening to this, you can attest to this, that they'd start the click and it would be like, wow, you were pretty much like you right on pa. the money. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thanks, Dad, for that. Thanks for instilling musical excellence. Um he he has big shoes to fill, that's for sure, in, in the music industry. He's worked with Diana Ross, Mandy yep, Patinkin. He mentioned it. Yeah, yep. he's he's just a, an absolute genius. He is, and I could hear that, but I could also <laughs> hear the bit of a frustration in him because it's like music these days have taken a different knock, you know, a different direction, so to say, and also relocating from where they used to live to the, the other place where they are now, it's difficult to sort of find very passionate musicians. Yeah, I think that's probably a matter of the demographic and the, mm. the area that he's in, which is, you know, high on retirement communities mm. and a lot of tourism. So there's there's probably that issue. Um, I think my experience is probably a bit different coming here and being around so many passionate and diligent musicians um, that have helped you lift and, and raise the bar. So... And he's also, you know, he's turning 70 this weekend, actually. Oh, amazing. So he, uh, he, he just has a different perspective. He's got kind of an old school perspective, whereas maybe my generation, our generation can appreciate the old and also appreciate some of the, the excellence that's coming out in the mm. new that maybe doesn't quite feel or sound like what he's used to. Yeah, yeah. Well, shout out to him. Uh, happy birthday! Yes, as happy we're birthday, there. Dad. And yeah, and <laughs> and thanks, you know, for the parents for raising you. Yeah. And I know that uh, in your family, there's also another part of the story. Probably we're going to touch on it. You got a brother. Yes, a uh, wonderful brother. Uh, yeah, and and I could hear even the pride that your parents actually spoke about him when we when we had a chat. So thanks for coming. I was saying the. Uh, um, it's great that your parents raised you and mm. your brother, mm -hmm. uh, an incredible lady, tough lady, uh, <laughs> a great leader. I had to, I had the privilege of, you know, serving with you about that very same three years ago that you called me to come and work with you and your husband in the church that I was in. Um, you mentioned something that really caught my attention because I had been in that church for a little while. You've been there longer than me, but when you invited me in, you said, I asked you what your vision was and you spoke something about, you know, DEIs, for instance. Uh, but you might have maybe mentioned a lot on diversity than maybe equity. And, well, inclusivity is a part, part and parcel of everything, so to say. Yeah. Um, and I was so, you know, intrigued to hear you say that because I was like, I've been here and I never had anyone say something like this. And that captured my attention. And eventually I agreed to come and work with you. What what why why are you championing um deis especially in the context of church well look i think first and foremost it's is part of who i am and a core value of mine um and i've always been passionate about diversity and inclusion equity um and 
when I was teaching at the college um, that's connected to the church, um, I saw so we had like 76 different nations represented at this college. And you experience through compassion and empathy um, other people's experience. And when I was hired to come into this location as the creative pastor, I was actually hired to bring a diversity and equity, diversity and inclusion plan. Um, and that just excited me so much because personally, um, growing up in a small town in New Jersey in the United States, um, in a town that was semi-diverse, uh, you know, high um, Korean population in, in the town I lived in, um, but again, mostly white. And I am a white woman. Um, and when I was around 12, we uh, as a family decided to become foster parents. And um, in that, we were fostering many, many children who came through the house and um, they were from all different backgrounds, all different colors of skin, all different um, demographics and, you know, financial situations and all different types of trauma backgrounds and everything. And um, it was actually starting to get a bit a bit hard mm-hmm. um, having such a rotating amount of children coming through and and being high empathy, you know, grabbing onto so much of that that trauma and your heart breaking every time they have to leave. Um, we wanted something a little bit more permanent and, um, a caseworker called us and said, look, we've got an eight year old little boy. Uh, this is probably going to be a little bit more long term. Um, would you be willing to take him? And we prayed about it, said, yeah, 100%. We'd love to. And so enter Vermont, my beautiful brother, who is an African-American man. Nice. Um, and he is just one of the kindest, sweetest, loveliest people that you will ever meet. He has a laugh that is so contagious you can't help but just, oh, you just giggle because he's giggling. And it's amazing. And um, he's just such a hard worker. He... He loves people. He He's in, incredible. And he's been that way since we met him, since he was eight years old. And he looked up at my mom and said, you're the most beautiful mom I've ever oh. had. And that was such a sweet thing to say, but it also broke our heart because we were thinking, how many homes has he been in? Like, wow. you know, what, what has that been like for him? And speaking of my mom, if I can do a little tangent here yeah, on mom, yeah. history teacher, she is passionate. So my passion about uh, diversity and about um, different cultures and welcoming different people, come it comes really from the generosity of my mother's spirit and the education she made sure that I had. So she um, really, really worked hard to educate me about all different cultures. And we would have celebrations in the house, you know, for... Um, Hanukkah and Passover and for the Christian holidays. Mm-hmm. And then we would have Kwanzaa celebrations mm-hmm. and, you know, all, all of these different things that she would instill in me and teach me. And the house was always filled with people of different cultures and backgrounds. We 
had a revolving door of people who were in need that right. if they had come on hard times, she would say, we have a spare room, come and stay with us. And wow. so the house was just always filled with a diverse amount of people. And that wasn't just in color of skin or ethnic background. It was it was in, you know, where they came from, what what type of financial background mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, whether they were um, neurotypical or neurodivergent. It was, you know, just the friendship group that we had, it was so very diverse. And um, so that's just a little bit about my mom. I'm going to go back to my brother yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so it was a beautiful thing that, that my brother came um, to live with us and then ended up being so long-term that he is now 100% part of the family oh, wow. in his thirties. Still, you know, he's my brother. He is my parents' son. Um, that became a very permanent situation. And at that point we became a mixed race family. family. Um, and I don't really like saying race because, um, I think, that term race was used to separate people of color from white people, um, from actually being human. So I believe we're one race. We are the human race with many different beautiful cultures and backgrounds and Mm. shapes and sizes and all of that. But, um, I like what you say now. Maybe that's where the rough word begins between me and you. Okay. If you say, obviously, we would hear, you know, race is a social construct and so on and so forth. But again, I think of your reasoning now to say, if you use it, it feels like there's a certain, you're marking someone in a certain way, so to say. But at the same time, I'm thinking, again, the silence of it might sort of help people to push towards their own assumption about certain things. Mm. Because I think it was during Black Lives Matter where, I saw for the first time you posted a picture of your brother and a lot of people who spend a lot of time around you, it's like they didn't know that actually you've got, you know, a black brother, yeah, so to say. But I can imagine what kind of a lot of assumptions they had about you. But for me, when I figured that out, because also I found out about your brother way later after I've known you, and I was like, actually, you're, you're a person that I should sit and listen to you more (laughs) when you speak about issues of race because first I saw you championing for people of color in the church I was in and it never occurred to me to think that there's there's a sort of more personal reason for you. Yeah, and and I think that the personal reason um, definitely heightens my conviction uh, but I think that just even the education and the upbringing that I had, that I was taught differently by someone who was equally as passionate about mm-hmm. diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, someone back in the 70s and 80s before she before my mom could even get a credit card in her name in America because mm. of women's rights. Yeah. You know, she she and my father have marched on Washington multiple times for different rights issues and. Um, I think that that is also the the education, and I think, um, you know, if we get into this later, education is really the key to seeing diversity and inclusion be more part of the norm 
and less part of something that we're really trying to break through. But a particular type of education. Yes. Because I remember in one of our chats, you made reference to meeting a few people in Sydney who came from the States, but they said certain things about oh. race. And I was like, chills. And then you said to me, that made you be aware of the fact that different states, in, in the US you speak of, of counties, different counties you know, have different forms of education. Yes. So it's a particular education. It's a particular education and it's, it's, I think, being diligent on having strategies and plans to make sure that that is the type of education that is happening and that it is happening in many forums, not just in school by one teacher for one semester, but that it is mm. repetitive. It is, it is part of the normal language. Um, just recently I've had to fight... Uh, to get an acknowledgement of country in a program. And I wrote a letter just expressing my disappointment in, in it not being included in a, in a function that I'm planning. And, um, and it was one of those things where you think we've taken so many steps forward and then you see someone say, oh, well, I, I don't think anyone from indigenous background will be there. So we don't want to do like the token thing. And I said, this is the, that is not what doing an acknowledgement of country is about. This is, this is a basic thing that you can implement every time to show that you are on board with reconciliation, to show that reconciliation is a part of your framework and not just something that you feel is token. And I just, I think we've, we've making, we've made some great strides, but we are so far from seeing this be normal language that more people would be shocked. Like I was shocked. I think there's still too many people in corporate positions and in director and leadership positions that are not shocked by language rather than someone who would stand up and write a letter saying in 2022, this is just a very simple and normal part of the reconciliation framework. You never stop fighting, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Because the last six months or probably a year has been very rough for you. And to hear you today still talking about fighting for, you know, acknowledgement of country into a program. And you spoke something now you say, you know, it's like we take a step forward and this, some people take us a step back. I don't know if you saw the Melbourne um, story where the premier is actually contemplating changing a hospital name, which was in Aboriginal name Mm. in honor of the queen. And that actually sparked a lot of political debate. Yep. And, and part of the problem is there's not enough people from indigenous background in spokesperson and director positions to be having a voice in, in making these decisions. And it's, it's just so obviously out of touch just very out of touch with reality and out of touch with um, where we are at as a society in Australia particularly, but I think in the Western world. Um, it is it is like so much of the fight, though, which has been exhausting for me, so I can only imagine how exhausting it is for people of color. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is a fight that I think has fallen on many deaf ears. 
because right. it has not affected them personally mm-hmm. and they have not had the consistent education that mm-hmm. they need. I, I, I hope they knew they were dealing with an American chick. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about differences in terms of understanding of concepts and so on here. Uh, DEIs in the U.S. means something completely big to, compared to when you look at it in the context of, you know, Australia. So when you are invited in, in you know, at college where you were teaching and they tell you about, you know, DEIs and whatsoever, do you feel like it was the same language as the one from the U.S. or the one that you personally, you know, hold so dearly? I think that Australians often believe that they are not racist or I see a lot of things like, oh, but I don't see color. And I think that it is similar language to things happening in America. I think in America there's a lot of people who, um, you know, it's a more individualistic society. Australia still is, but it, it it's less than America. Mm-hmm. And Americans tend to really strong, strongly hold to their rights and, well, I work just as hard as anyone else and not understand um, that they have had privilege above and beyond minority groups. And I think Australia has done a better job than America at reconciliation. Um, the fact that there is reconciliation plans and frameworks that companies are absorbing and that the government is spending a good amount of resource into making sure they are implemented, um, however slow it might be. Uh, Australia has done a much better job. In my humble opinion, you know, I don't have the statistics, mm-hmm. I don't have the, the government paperwork in front of me, um, but as an observer, I would say America has a lot of work to do to reconcile to its Native Americans and to its people of color, um, especially those who do come from, um, you know, a lineage of people who were brought over on ships from Africa, mm-hmm. uh, but also just any person of color who is looked at or treated differently. I think, um, they have a long way to go as far as equity for women, mm-hmm. um, for the LGBTQ community. I think that, um, they have a long way to go as far as, um, the disability sector and hiring and, uh, giving opportunities for, um, people with additional needs, mm-hmm. whether that be, uh, physical or, you know, learning, um, I don't know if this is answering your question because I'm not sure of the language. What I, what I can say as an observer is, while I think Australia has done more and has done better, mm-hmm. there is still an ignorance to unconscious bias. Right. There is still an ignorance or a, a lack of willingness to do the hard work to look deeply at themselves as as leaders at the structure and how the structure has actually been damaging to different groups um and there is a lot of fragility 
especially in white men. That's the thing. That's one word, keyword I would have loved to hear you sort of stretching it further because when I was by your house and we had dinner with your parents, I was talking to your dad and I heard your voice. You were talking, but I couldn't help it. I had the word white fragility and I turned and was like, "Uh oh, did she really say that? Oh, I said it. I said it. What is... What is white fragility to you? And and I don't know if you've engaged the works of um, Robin D'Angelo. No, I haven't. Right. Okay. Let me I'm hear. I'm gonna write that down. Right. And engage. Okay. Okay. White fragility is something that I I don't like to have to admit that I have definitely experienced and have had to challenge. And so because I have experienced it, I know it is real and I have, I have seen it in myself and I have seen it in other people. And what white fragility is, is that white people, especially, can I say as an American, we have been taught from a very young age in school that every war we went into was for righteous reasons. It was to be, you know, we saved the day in every war, um, that we are righteous, we are a righteous God nation. Um, and I think that with this white fragility, it stems from white power. It stems from a whitening of the Christian gospel. And we want to believe as good Christian people, as a good Christian nation, that we are good people. And that we would never treat another person badly simply because of how they look. And look at all we've done. We fought a war to get rid of slavery. And we have always been on the right side of history. But that's because the victors write history. Mm-hmm. And white fragility is an ego that is so fragile that if someone were to ever say what you have done is actually racist what you have done shows bigotry what you have said hurt me and this is why and for someone to come back and say oh but i don't see color i would not i'm not a racist oh i but i love all people and i go well I taught, a, I taught a lecture once, and I know that I hurt people in the room when I said this, and I had to apologize after, but it needed to be said for the white people in the room. And it was that when I had come to Australia, I was confronted with my own biases and my own white fragility. And it was because being in an environment with people from so many different nations, my preconceived notions were challenged because where I was from, a lot of people from Mexico had come into America illegally for a better life. Mm -hmm. And so my perception of a lot of uh, people from Mexico was from that experience. And I found it hard to understand how so many students from Mexico had all of this money and were able to come and afford to live in Australia. But as I was having that thought, it was immediately challenged with 
that is such that is unconscious bias right. that you have had that you have held a people group as much as you love them and appreciate their culture and don't like you wouldn't say you think less of them your perception was less than how how could they afford to come here and i express this in a class to say none of us are without unconscious bias and we need to be willing to challenge that because if we're not, and if we just become defensive, mm-hmm. that is white fragility. That is us not being willing to be wrong mm-hmm. or to challenge a conception and go, wow, I've actually had, maybe I'm not as good of a person as I thought. It's the, when I am driving and having a bit of road rage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, am I allowed to have road rage? I think so. Um, I'm not screaming at anyone. Well, some people (laughs) can really make you have one, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, you know, if if you're passing a car that's been driving slow Mm -hmm. and in my mind I'm thinking, oh, it's either... You know, I bet bet that's an old person or I bet that's a woman. Yes. Or I bet that's an Asian driver. We do that. As a black person, I can tell you, we know all those things. And I think that's one of the things that confronts the question as to whether, because it's the whole notion around black community that says black people cannot be racist. Right. Right. And for me, I'm like, uh, I'm not sure about that. Right. But again, that'll be an unfair response if I'm going to leave it there. Because as a sociologist and scientifically, if I have to sort of get deeper with certain things, then the response also might look different. Yeah. So, for instance, um, based color racism is a form of discrimination, so to say. That's right. Every human being does discriminate. Exactly. It's a human nature. But then when we go then to speak more about racism, because, again, there's different scholars. There's a scholar from the Latin Americas, Ramon Grossfogel, who speak about racism and put it in different categories. That it's not just about color racism, it's also religious racism, it's also gender, so patriarchy and all those things, right? Yeah. But of which many people, when they speak then of racism, they'll just speak on, you know, the, um, what do you call it? The mainstream racism, which is of color racism. Yeah. But then when I say the response would look different, it's in a sense of saying now, if we look at the different groups in the world... Can black people be racist in a form that disempowers? Because then you begin to think about racism in a context of disempowering somebody else. Right. So that might kind of like begin to shift the scope. But I do believe that each and every human being has the capability to be discriminative, so to say. Yes, and I think that's the key word, what you just said, is, is for me, maybe I've compartmentalized discrimination and racism. Because we can discriminate against, um, you know, someone who's gender non-conforming. Is that racism? I wouldn't say it's racism. Racism. I would say it's discrimination. Yeah. And so I and I understand what you're saying about you know if you are not the person holding the power, can you be racist? Mm-hmm. And so I would say if that's one of the definitions of racism, mm-hmm. is that a person holding the power discriminates against someone because of their race Mm -hmm. then then no black people can't be racist but black people can certainly be bigots can certainly be um you know guilty of discrimination and prejudice and unconscious bias yep 
because all of us have the unconscious bias that we will gravitate towards someone or something that is familiar to us. Mm-hmm. So as an American at Bible college, I did gravitate towards other Americans. And then we started having these, you know, cultural connects, America connect, Africa connect, um, Japanese connect, Canadian connect, you know, Mexican connect, um, Colombian connect, you know, because we were gravitating towards the familiar. And at one point I checked myself as well. Cause I realized a lot of the girls that I was hanging out with were all blonde. Mm-hmm. I looked around me one day and I said, we are all blonde. And even one of my friends who's Egyptian mm-hmm. had dyed her hair blonde. And so while she's an Egyptian yeah. person of color, she had blonde hair. And I realized, oh my goodness, I am, it's that mirroring that we do mm-hmm. in unconscious bias, which is why it's so important in leadership and in employment to be aware of these things and then have strategies in place to counteract when we have unconsciously chosen people to be around us mm-hmm. that look like us. It It's a psychological framework that we are all susceptible to. So that is why having strategies and, and frameworks in place to combat that is more more than if not just as important as being aware of unconscious bias because we can be aware of it but then it's unconscious when it happens and often we're not aware that it's happened until after the fact and you asked me one day a question if i think we're talking about racism and you said to me i asked you a question whether somebody who was oversight your boss or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) if i should say that was racist or not, and you said to me, there is definitely an unconscious bias. And you asked me that, but um, is an unconscious bias person racist? And I said, I said it depends. If then you're un- if if then you have unconscious bias, and then I sort of come to draw that to your attention, and you become defensive of it. Therefore, yeah. we might start to talk about something else than just unconscious bias. Yeah. And look, what what I think the word that we actually used in that conversation was ignorance. <laughs> but I think we struggle with that word ignorance because with white fragility, as soon as you call a white person ignorant, the white fragility kicks in. I'm not ignorant. Yeah. I'm educated. I work hard. I do. And it, again, it is an ignorance to what ignorance means. Yeah. And so it's ironic <laughs> because it's like you defending yourself with that argument is just proving Ignorance. Yeah, the ignorance, yeah. So I feel like we've we've switched the language to unconscious bias because it is less accusatory. Yes. And it rubs white fragility. It massages less. this the ego. Yeah, it massages yeah. the ego. It, as well. Oh gosh. And sometimes as an American too, I'm a straight shooter. I'm gonna tell you what it <laughs> I is. Know. Sometimes in Australia when you have to massage everything <laughs> and go through the back door and around and everything, I'm just like, Okay, I have learned living here for twelve years that that is what you have to do and you have to put some flowery language mm. around things where I'm like, you know what, mm. we could have just gotten to point C a lot faster if we had just been direct. Yes. Or just said, you know, the amount of times who I said this and it's like, you did not say that. You said a whole bunch of mm. around the back door things mm-hmm. that was not direct. Mm-hmm. But I think I spent an exhausting amount of time defending a person in saying, look, product of upbringing, 
ignorant of these things, not racist, wanted a diversity, diversity and um, inclusion plan, like is passionate about seeing diversity on team and, and in platform. But I think, I think that the problem is, is that words are cheap. And when you do things in action and that diversity and inclusion strategy is consistently, um, you know, having to be, uh, reframed, reworked, reevaluated feedback about pendulum swinging too far. Um, you start to wonder if that ignorance actually has, um, woven into, the fabric of their whole worldview to become racism and they're completely unaware. And, and Sorry, another thing that I would call... On, I want to check. Are you comfortable talking about sort of contextualizing the swing of the pendulum too far or not? Uh, sure. It, there, there was an instance where... Um, you know, there were eight people on a team, three of which were people of color, five of which were white. And um, I actually think that that's not equity. Okay. <laughs> because three out of eight is not equal. And it was three people of color and all of the five white people kind of were of similar age, size, creed, background, you know. So but I the, didn't does actually... the population matter? The population size? Because I think there's, there's, there's that other one also. Mm. <laughs> I think if your population is all white and you want diversity, um, then you have to do the things to put people in leadership positions to make people of color mm-hmm. or... You know, people um, with additional needs. Like, mm-hmm. let's say you want you want more people who have a physical um, disability to be on your team, but then you don't have a single person in a wheelchair or, you know, yeah. a, a prosthetic device or anything like that on your team. Chances are, people are going to be less comfortable yes. to be a part yes. and less comfortable right. to put themselves out there and be the first. You're right. Yeah. Whereas if they look up and they see themselves in the leadership team or they see themselves on a platform, then they go, oh, there are people like here. me. I belong. And so if you want your your team, your organization to be less white, which, which is what was expressed to me, or if you understand that you have a large population of um people who are not white in your congregation that aren't actively involved and you want to know how to get them actively involved, then you diversify in a way that is not tokenism, Mm -hmm. but in a way that is true diversity. Mm -hmm. And I think that what this oversight's idea of diversity is, is tokenism and not true diversity. It's feeling good about having one person of color because there is still something called white preference. And so you might say to yourself in your white fragility, I'm not a racist, but do you prefer looking up and seeing a mostly white team, 
a mostly skinny and fit team, a mostly well-dressed and beautiful team, you know, the people that you have around you, we have preferences. And so if your preference is still white, we have a big issue there. And Mm -hmm. if you are unaware of your white preference, if you are unaware of your own white privilege to be making decisions like that, that is such a privileged decision, such a privileged conversation to say, you know, there were too many black people on the stage. Three out of eight. And that that just infuriated me. Yeah, I can imagine. I had a lot of things myself while on the hot seat, you know, being mm. in support of the ministry, where I would have probably there were like eight people, but three of them were still people of color. And then one person came to me and said, you've got to, since you took over, there's a lot of black people on stage. And I'm like, what do you mean a lot of black people on stage? And there would be things also such as they looked like three musketeers and the person would make like fun of it and all sorts of things. And I had to sort of learn to walk away from such, because for me, I was also thinking, some people is it really worth engaging them or it's just good to sort of leave them but there's a lot of things that I sort of kept it within my inside and one of the things was you know conversations about you know people having to you know people of color should sing and sound like white people and of which I kept quiet with that conversation for almost over a year and it was addressed when you when you now came in yeah and also it came out because you brought an incredible, you know, uh, worship leader to come and do a workshop. And then I had to ask a question and of which even himself, he was touched by that. And then later on he was sharing with me that he had the similar experiences. And mm. he's sort of, um, if I'm not mistaken, he's in Ireland. He's got a sort yeah. of, of an island background. Yeah, Maori, yeah. Ma- yeah. And I was like, this, this, is, this is sad. But anywho, I don't, yeah. Okay, I want to address something here. And because, you know, we are talking about racism and leadership. um, And I think dealing with racism when you are a leader who is passionate about diversity and inclusion and has been brought on to bring diversity and inclusion against all odds, even when the person hiring you to do so doesn't actually really want it. They think they do. But here's, here's the thing that is part of the fight. When you told me about those conversations, um, I, I think I was a little bit shocked and dismayed, but at the same time, I said, this is a good thing. Because when you start to bring diversity and inclusion into a, a situation, let's call it, mm-hmm. that has not had that before yeah. and has not had a plan in place before, it makes people uncomfortable. And I think that those of us who are in the fight for this have to be okay with sitting in a space where people are consistently uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And they're uncomfortable because it is challenging their norm. It is challenging their unconscious bias. It is challenging their racism. It is challenging their ability to feel like they fit in a space 
And I think that's what a lot of white fragility does as well as it goes, well, but if, if we start putting all of these things into place where we have to hire five people from this background and we have to hire three people from this background and we can only have this many white people on at a time, um, then white fragility goes, but then what about my opportunity? Mm-hmm. And like, I know that that is a thing because I have I have thought it ashamedly mm-hmm. so I have I have had those thoughts of going well but then what does that mean for me mm-hmm. and white fragility is also well now my worldview my framework my security is going to be challenged and maybe I'm just maybe I'm just a mean person, but I, I kind of just go, well, tough, because you know what? For centuries and centuries and centuries, you have had it so good. <laughs> and just because, j- just because, you know, there were three people of color on a team and that makes you uncomfortable, when you walk outside, you are still going to be preferred as a white male in every situation that you are in. And that is going to be decades, if not centuries, of this consistent work before we get to a place where that is not the case. And to be so scared that your security will be taken away, that is, there's so many dimensions to that that I we would have to do a whole other podcast, I think, mm-hmm. to discuss the, the, the onion that needs to be peeled back around, around that thought. And I think what the implications of the future are for that is quite beautiful, but what it does mean is that white people who I think intrinsically know that they have white preference and white power, but don't want to admit it, they know it because when they see that it might be taken away, they panic. Mm-hmm. And it's those people who complain and say, I work just as hard, or they don't want plans like that, or they say, I disagree with having... You know, I disagree with the plan of we have to have, you know, so many people of this age, so many people of this color, so many people of this background on a roster in order to have diversity and equity. I think it should just flow naturally. Well, the mistake in that is that when it just flows naturally, you flow out of your unconscious bias. Right. You flow out of your white fragility. Mm-hmm. You don't flow out of here is a plan that challenges those things that have historically been the reason why we don't have diversity and inclusion. Do you think, do you ever find that people mis- and mistaken the use of words, instead of saying, I do not understand, they say, I do not agree? Because I feel like most of the times people would say, I, I disagree with this diversity and whatnot, but the question is, but do you understand why it should be there? So, for instance, one leader who tells me that they don't see color. They just see human beings. I was like, yeah, look, I hear what you say, but that also might be a denial of the fact that as far as race is a social construct, but it, it, has, it has now become sort of a geographical marker which mm. people can use just to disempower others, you yeah. know. So, uh, and, and then he told, and the person told me that they disagreed with someone. I was like, but I hear you disagree, but do you understand why? the person was championing for these ideas and the response was no then I was like perhaps you should have opted for understanding before you can choose to disagree and I think that understanding and disagreeing they are still two different things Mm -hmm. I don't think it's 
I don't think it's someone misusing the word. I think that someone has made a decision to disagree out of their white fragility. Um, And I feel like when we say that word white fragility, so many people think, oh, it's such a dirty word. And I'm like, you know what? It just, it is what it is. It just is what it is. I'll I'll, I'll draw them to the works of uh, Robin D'Angelo because I like like how she sort of mapped it. And when she explains, she says white fragility doesn't mean weakness. Actually, white fragility means a certain form of power that you always rely on unleashing as a form of defense. Yes. And she uses, she says white fragility is is when white people refuse to acknowledge racial stresses or racist stresses. People who would say phrases such as, some of my friends are black, therefore I cannot be racist. You know, uh, um, we had a, uh, my maid or house helper is black, therefore I cannot be. <laughs> I cannot be racist. I have friends who are black. Y- Can you know, you, like when's the last time you hung out? When's the last time you listened to them? I had, you know, when when I was doing a bit of of fighting during um, twenty twenty when uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was really coming to a head that year. Mm-hmm. I had people say, "Well, you know, I'm so glad that in my community in Canada we never had anything like that happen." I said. Um, how many of your friends are native Canadians? Yeah. Oh, I've got cousins and things who, um, you know, have some native background. I said, have you ever talked to them about it? Mm-hmm. No. Have you ever talked to them about it? No. Well, I suggest that you do because I guarantee you will be saying something different yeah. after you've had conversations with them because yeah. they have 100% experienced racism in Canada and you know it is it's this that is white fragility it is it is the refusal to step outside of your own power Mm -hmm. it's the fear that you will lose that power if you admit that there are racial constructs into in place that are there to promote some and keep others down. And um, I think that not understanding comes from a lack of desire to understand and a lack of need to understand because they walk around in their white little world. Mm -hmm. I walk around in my white little world. And if it doesn't, if it hasn't ever affected you, if you haven't ever seen it, if you don't understand your white privilege, and and this is something, you know, I'd like to go back and talk about my brother for a minute. Yeah, no worries. I think how I would have never known my own white privilege if it had not been for my brother. I think I walked around in a, a beautiful little world that, you know, I could just bounce along and twirl my blonde hair and, smile and laugh and Mm -hmm. and my my brother comes along and he is someone that I love so dearly and I see I see how different our lives are living in the same house in the same town with the same parents and nothing to do with the fact that for eight years previously he was raised by other people Mm -hmm. but simply for the fact that I never in my entire life feared walking into my house thinking someone's not going to believe I live here. 
So we lived in a more affluent part of town. Um, we were by no means very wealthy, I think on a world scale, definitely most Americans are quite wealthy. Um, we had a large, beautiful Victorian house that we spent many years renovating and rolling pennies to be able to buy food and groceries. You know, yeah. a lot of times you just see the the end result. You don't see all of the sweat and tears yeah. and yeah. backbreaking work it took to get there. Um, but we have this beautiful house and um, multiple times we had police show up at the front door or surround the property with guns out, six police cars for one teenage black male who was simply going into his own home. And there was one one instance where I was home and I was doing the dishes in the kitchen and we had this back door that had like a little mud room and stairs up into the kitchen. So I see my brother with this man um, at that back door as I'm doing the dishes and I look over and I'm like, okay. And I see my brother walks past me and whispers to me, it happened again. I was like, what? And I'm looking at this guy and he's just kind of standing there like with arms crossed. And I'm looking at him going, whatever, okay, keep doing the dishes. And my brother comes back downstairs and hands him something. And the cop, well, I didn't know he was a cop at the time, but the man hands this thing, this card or whatever it was back to my brother and leaves. And so my brother comes back up and I said, what do you mean? What, what happened again? And he tells me, well, that was actually an undercover police officer who didn't believe that this was where I lived and made me go and get my license to show that this was the address. Oh. And I threw down that sponge in the sink, took my gloves off, <laughs> and I ran outside <laughs> after that police officer and I screamed like I have not screamed in a long time. I was like, do you understand how many times this has happened? That there have been six cop cars knocking, like police officers knocking on the door with my dad opening the door and then being all confused and just saying, how many times has this happened to my brother? And he said, well, ma'am, you have to understand. I saw him walking up from the the movie theater that he worked at and managed. Mm -hmm. And he stopped and he looked at these other buildings. And then he stopped at the edge of your property and looked up, stopped in the middle and looked up and then disappeared up the driveway. And I said, so because he was looking, he was suspicious. And I said, if I had done all of those things, your assumption would be this is her house. I said, what you what you missed, what you didn't understand is he works at that theater. He stopped and looked up at buildings that we as a family had gone to council to fight from being built. And then he's just spent the last two days with my father decorating, decorating. the house for Christmas. I remember you did share the story. And he put wreaths in every window and lights in every window. And he had hung lights on the tree with my dad. And he had put ribbons all down the front stairs and everything and made it look so beautiful and so my beautiful brother is standing at the edge of the property down to the left looking up and admiring his work and saying how does it look from this view he comes to the middle and he looks up how does it look from the middle and then he comes home I said but you didn't see that you didn't see a man admiring his Christmas decorations you saw a black man in a nice neighborhood and said something doesn't match here mm -hmm. and I just, I was so angry 
but I was also so angry because I, I felt like it was so unfair that I never had to experience that and that he would always have to experience things like that in a neighborhood where like he was a football star, well known in the community, mm. um, for playing high school football, you know, well known for walking the dogs and everyone would always know oh, that's for mom walking the dogs and the whole neighborhood would wave all of our neighbors on the street know him. So it's, he said that someone called and made an anonymous tip. And I said, well, it wasn't anyone that lives here because every single person on the street knows us. They've been to our house. They know my brother. And he, he made a point. He said, well, cause I said, can you like just let them know at the police department that yeah. a black man lives here? And he said, well, the thing is if someone calls in a break and enter or calls in something, I can't not respond simply because I know a black man lives here. Just like, you know, with, with anything, <laughs> I, if they say a white man's breaking and entering, I'm not going to not respond. Cause I go, well, white people live there. So I understood that perspective of the police officer. Yes. And he said, you know, well, my partner's black and it happened, this happened to him just the other day. His neighbor called the cops on him. So I don't know if that makes you feel better. I said, no, it doesn't make me feel better, actually. It really doesn't because I know, I know that my experience of being in the shops with my brother mm-hmm. and seeing the shop attendant following him around and not me. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he's the goody two-shoes in the family and I'm the <laughs> one who was arrested at 16 for shoplifting. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay? You know, and like I'm the one that has more, you know, you know, opportunity and is probably more leaning towards <laughs> stealing something from their shop, but they're not following me around. They're following my brother around. And the amount of times he's been pulled over for things that, were so stupid, like broken taillight and his taillight wasn't broken or, you know, f- speeding when he wasn't speeding or mm. a fail- failure to yield. All of these things that, you know, um, he's been pulled over for or the time when he and his best friend, who was a white man, um, were hanging out in front of this guy's house and the cops came and basically had my brother pinned up against the cop car while the other cop was just laughing along with, his white friend Mm -hmm. and almost interrogating my brother. And you look at these stark differences of experiences in the same town on the same street, same parents, same upbringing, same high school, same education, same working class. And the only difference to our experience, the difference to me being able to go to court to fight a speeding ticket that I very much deserved by batting my eyes and twirling my hair and him being shut down by not even being allowed to speak. And because he has a learning disability, um, he can't always respond as quickly because he has delayed processing. So to be yelled at when he's trying to stay calm and formulate a thought and speak whereas I've had cops come up to me in courtrooms and be like, could I give you a ticket? Oh my goodness. You know, just Mm. such different experiences. And the only conclusion that you can come to after these experiences is that white privilege is very real. I benefit from it every day of my life. And people have 
unconscious bias that leads to prejudice, discrimination, mm. and racism, or leads to prejudice, discrimination against people, groups that are not like you, mm-hmm. things that you don't understand. I think it's why in, in the church, especially in the, the movement that is still very traditional, pastors can ignore or say there's not anything we can really do about gossip but they don't ignore a team member that has recently come out yes because they cannot understand as a heterosexual white male they cannot understand those feelings they can understand gossip because they've probably done it and go oh well you know mm-hmm. been there done that you know not a big deal but the bible you know, Paul's writings would make it very clear that they're both the same kind of deal. <laughs> that if you're going to read the text that way, actually, that if you're going to, you know, say say a blanket statement like that, which, you know, I'm <clears throat> also working through <laughs> what, what that actually says. But if you're going to look at a, a traditional reading and an evangelical context, that if you haven't experienced something you are more quick to cut it off or have no compassion for it or not be as understanding or as lenient because you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to, well, is it that you didn't agree or you didn't understand? Well, if you don't understand something, if you have it, and if you are also low on empathy and can't put yourself in someone else's shoes, you are not going to understand. You are going to hold fast and firm in your beliefs and in the things that make you feel safe in your little bubble and your your little worldview. And I think that's that's the reality of of where these things stem from. So you kept on using the words um, white fragility. Um supremacy not really much and so on but i'm thinking about these words and you use the word discriminated discrimination my my guest last week or the in the last episode actually spoke about the same thing where he said he'd rather use the word discrimination than racism because racism is understood in the context of color racism not in the scientific way that i was explaining about sort of ramon grossfogel's work that touches on religion, you know, family patterns, patriarchy, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So to sort of use also the word discrimination at some point, it's, and as we touched on, it might appear as if you're massaging someone else's ego because in, in reality, you might want to use the word white fragility. But also the fact that words such as white fragility, white supremacy, or you're racist are sort of understood in a pejorative way. These are harsh, dismissive words as opposed to just a descriptor, so to say, and so on. I'm keen in understanding, like, from your own perspective, because somebody asked me also the question, Tony, we need someone like you who can come and teach in our church about racism. And I was like, I'm not sure whether I want to teach in a church about racism. Because the minute you say racism, people sort of begin to switch off their minds and whatsoever. Then Mm -hmm. that might be a tedious labor that you're going to engage in but rather if you teach people love and consistency that might look somewhat different Mm. consistency across everybody 
you know. I love that. So um, what can you weigh something on the little few lines that I've already said now? Like what's your thought around how do we encourage anti-racism in church, our choice of words and versus what could be the reality? I think um, being intentional in the community is um, is the the way that we're going to combat this. It's it's the more you get to know someone and know someone's background and story, the more compassion and empathy mm-hmm. you have for that person. And when you start to hear people's stories, it starts to enlighten you. I think if if you are a decent human being, mm-hmm. um, you can't help but feel challenged by other people's mm-hmm. stories, whether you're high empathy or low empathy. Um, I think that type of education, not just sitting down for a course about you know anti-racism, which we need, and there's a place for that, mm-hmm. but you are going to find more success in changing people's mindsets and changing the framework through relationship. And I think, you know, when I asked you to oversee that team, you know, that was that was a, a strategic move to have that relationship start to be built and and as you know, that was hard. It was. It was hard work. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, we've put a, let's say we've put a, a black woman on the board of directors. Done. No. And, and for her, this might be an incredible opportunity, but now the actual hard work begins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's having these frameworks and these strategies is step one. There are 10 other steps after that that are hard work and and need consistency and and need people who are willing to or, or are aware of the fact that there's going to be hurt, mm-hmm. there's going to be strife, there's going to be pushback. Like I said before, we're making people uncomfortable. Yes. And those people will either through relationships, start to get to know and understand and have their uh, frame of mind challenged, or they're going to buckle down in their racism or in their worldview. And we just have to do the work. And that work is done through strategy and through relationship. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Um. We've worked hard on this one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Racism, DEIs, and so on and so forth. But I'd love to hear you sort of weighing in now the experiences of women. If you feel you've got the energy for that, just hint for me. If you feel like we should park it here, and I'm, 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 I'm all right with anything. Yeah. I, I, as a woman in leadership, I... I think that I have been privileged in the organizations that I have been a part of. Um, let's say the church that I grew up in, the associate pastor was a woman. So I never had an issue seeing a woman in leadership. 
um, coming to Australia and being part of a large church um, where there are many women in leadership, I never personally felt like I was discriminated against as a woman until I started getting a little bit deeper into leadership or <laughs> observing things a little bit more and seeing that, you know, the eldership board and board of directors still heavily weighted male. And we pat ourselves on the back because we go, oh, we have a woman on our board. And it's like, that's great. You have one out of 10. You know, that is not equity. That is, that is maybe for the church, it's championing women. Maybe for the church, it's radical, but it, it is... It is not equity. And I have been in meetings, let's say, you know, planning um, Lord Mayor's breakfast. Or, maybe. Yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, I have been in meetings with uh, where I was the only w woman and the only female voice. And I was not only the only female voice, but I was also the only voice for diversity and inclusion. And I could see where I would bring ideas to the table and we're like, mm, oh, oh, James, what do you think? I'm just making up a name that not really James. Yeah. And they would basically say exactly what I just said and it would be the best idea wow. they had ever heard. Wow. And when I brought things to the table, like, so I'm just seeing that um, our lineup is very white, um, you know, They'd say, oh, well, we don't have any people. We don't have any black people on our team. I said, well, I have, I have quite a few people of color that we could roster. I'm sure the Lord Mayor would appreciate having diversity mm. um, since she's passionate about that as well. And then said, well, but if, if we roster all of those people, then it's going to be too heavy on your church. And I said, well, take me off the roster. I don't need to sing. Like I'm, I'm happy to not do it and put one of my team who's a person of color on and I'm happy to not do it. And, and one of the people said, oh, well, you know, I said, it's very white. And he said, well, that's Newcastle. And I said, it's actually not Newcastle. Wow. It's Newcastle 10 years ago. Yeah. But Newcastle is a lot more diverse than I think people who are stuck in their ways give it credit for and are potentially unwilling to do the work to change that. And I just, as a woman, quite a few times have felt like my voice wasn't as heard. Um, I didn't realize that my mother couldn't get a credit card without my father's signature All right. until after yeah. I was born. Yeah. I... <clears throat> I think that there have been moments where I was bringing serious issues to the table and I wasn't aware of it at the time. I thought maybe it was just because of who I was or, or my youth or, you know, I hadn't built the trust yet with this leadership team. But I realized that male voices were heard and their ideas acted upon mm -hmm. a lot more than female. Now, I had an oversight in Sydney who was not like that at all, who would actually call me and ask for my opinion. And, he, you know, he's a man. 
and I always felt very much appreciated. Um, and like there were at least people who would ask for my opinion mm-hmm. and, and cherish that opinion. Um, I think that when you've had experiences like that or when you've been raised in a family that, you know, is very focused on equity, I always had an opinion. My <clears throat> my father very much lifted me up as, as a female in anything and, you know, was told I could do anything and be anything I wanted. And then I think you become an adult and you get outside of certain bubbles and you realize that, maybe you can't do and be everything that you want um, for numerous reasons, but one of those reasons is potentially because you are a female. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that we have a, a human rights plan and amendment in the Constitution in America that does not have any specific language around women that we still are not protected as women in our constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a ways to go. The statistics show that there is still a huge wage gap in both America and Australia between men, men and, and women. women doing the same job. I just read a statistic yesterday, actually, that... Um, women are five times more likely to be successful in job interviews when the resumes are blind, when there's no name or gender attached, and that uh, women and people of color are five times more likely. Um, When people um, of different nations uh, whiten their names and resumes, they are five times more likely to be successful. Um, So again, this goes back to unconscious bias. And when the people who are running the table, who own the table are white men, then they are going to surround themselves with other white men, Mm -hmm. especially old, rich, white men are going to hang out with old, rich, white men. And who are they going to surround themselves on a board with? Unless they are educated and have Mm-hmm. relationships and community with people that are different than them, they're going to continue the pattern. And that's why it is so important that we we actually do things to fight against that. Um, <clears throat> but as long as rich white men continue to be at the top, women will not see equity. Mm-hmm. So we need equity plans for women just as much as we need for people of color, for gender differences, for mm-hmm. the disability sector. We we still need to understand that um, while I might have white privilege, I don't have white male privilege. Right. Um, and and that is something that is is consistently at the forefront of my mind, especially as I've transitioned roles and transitioned careers. Um, my security in myself and my belief in myself as a whole person has definitely changed because I have recognized that there are, that I do have disadvantages compared to other people. Nowhere near as much as other people, as a heterosexual white female, I have so many more advantages than other females, than 
so many other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. At some point, you when we had we had a, a seminar you organized about uh, the salvific. Um, mm. Salvific history, from Genesis yeah, yeah, yeah. Revelation, and and that day you made a statement about Paul, which I found myself, you know, <laughs> laughing. And I'm curious, understanding whether in the context of church, really, how transformed are we by the Word of God? Mm. If you enter the space and you find that it's so like toxic let me not just say patriarchy because i think society thrives with patriarchy same way society thrives with yeah. feminism you know yeah. femininity but toxic patriarchy or toxic masculinity mm. those things still thrives in a context of church how transformed are we or really is it also a matter of being transformed or it's people leaning towards a certain patriarchal um theology so looking at paul would say you know, because for me, again, it's the issue of translations, which I had, I've got a number of problems with, with um, some of the readings. Mm. If you read in one translation, then you hear Paul says, well, I should not speak and you read another one. He says, particularly in my church, I don't allow, I'm like, that sounds very personal. If I read a text and says, particularly in my church, I don't allow a woman to speak. Mm-hmm. Did you come across a certain Jezebel who just wreaked your life and then you now <laughs> <laughs> decided to sort of brand all women in a yes. very negative way whatsoever? Yes. So I guess my question is, is there are we really transformed if we still see part of that? Or or it's 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 not a matter of transformation in a spiritual way. It's a matter of still in a spiritual way we just engage a lot of patriarchal kind of texts or more texts that in their translation they sort of play out more patriarchal reasoning look this is a huge conversation we we had a two-hour study (laughs) with a lot of this and i i don't i don't know how to say it concisely other than i did have a problem with paul I thought he was a misogynistic, patriarchal mm-hmm. jerk who hated women and must have been really burnt by some woman at some point and just became a woman hater. And after reading um, Paul, Among the, Paul Among the People by Sarah Rudin and having a different take on Paul and actually seeing how radical and how liberating he was for his time, hmm. I think that a lot of my perspective about scripture has changed and what scripture actually is and what those people, when they referred to scripture, actually meant, which would have been uh, what we consider parts of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. These letters that they wrote, they never would have expected these would be part of scripture for a religion or for canon. Mm. They were just writing directions for a heavily persecuted church, trying to hold in the balance the lives and the future of the church and the spread of the gospel while also being radical and being radically changed by the spirit of God. It wasn't, Paul wasn't radically changed by scripture. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew scripture. Paul was radically changed by an encounter on the road with Jesus Christ. So I think that when it comes to these things, if we're being formed by something and we're going to use Paul as an example. We cannot be formed 
simply just by words that are in this compilation. We need to be formed by the Spirit of God. We need to be formed by the example of Jesus Christ because times have changed. The world is not... The world is is 2,022 years older than it was when these things happened and Mm -hmm. were written. And we are still in a patriarchal society, but nowhere near as patriarchal as it was 2,000 years ago. Um, And women are legally allowed to testify, legally allowed to work and make their own living and are not shunned because they didn't get married and couldn't have children. The world is very different. We have so many advances in so many different spheres in technology and medicine, in, in human rights, in corporal punishment. You know, we're not sending people to a Coliseum to be eaten by wild beasts anymore, you know, at least not in, in the Western world. Um, but, if we're going to be shaped and formed by something, I just don't believe that it can be solely by the words of a man who was doing his best to keep a church together and to not... Because it was kind of like Paul was constantly between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. He was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. He wanted to. He he most likely wanted to liberate women and have women be leading everything. But in that society and all the persecution that he was even personally facing, I think he, like Elise said in in the Bible study, yeah. he really had to pick his battles because the future of Christianity was riding on these churches mm-hmm. and whether or not people were going to completely walk away from it. Or if the Romans were going to come in and just slaughter everyone and say, you know what, this cult has got to go. Because they were already being slaughtered. And so I think that um, the patriarchy is still real. As long as men hold the power, they hold the power. It's just like if the rich keep getting... The, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. And it's because those who have money and generational wealth will continue to be able to build generational wealth. Mm-hmm. Whereas those who have no wealth, it is 50 times harder for them to build generational wealth. And it's the same in a society that has been so secure and the framework has been so secure in male headship and male leadership that... We have, we have, I think the study I read yesterday said that it'll be another 50 years before we actually see um, a, a lean towards equity for women in the workplace. Wow. 50 years, that we are still 50 years away. That means that my child, like if I had a child today, she would be 50 before... Like she'd be almost retirement age before she saw equity in the workplace. Hmm. And is that is that now in the Australian context or just overall? It was actually a study done in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
we, we have, we have a lot of work to do. It is so much better for women. I do believe that, but the fact that, you know, we're still told that being raped is our fault, that, you know, you shouldn't have been out that late. What were you wearing? Mm -hmm. That is just in the last year, all Mm -hmm. of the cases where women were assaulted, raped and murdered. It was, oh, men need to, fathers need to do better at protecting their daughters. And it's like, actually, maybe do better at educating your sons. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I had someone, I posted something like that. I had someone fight against me on that. And I said, but think about it. They said, what do you mean? Dad shouldn't be protecting their daughters. I said, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is this never would have happened if men had been taught better. And there is still a huge gap in society when it comes to fairness and safety for women. Um, and it can be a scary place. You, I've read another study where um, a, a man was in a training and he was the only man. Uh, and it was like a self-defense type of training. And it was asking the, the people in the room, you know, what do you guys do when you, what does everyone in the room do when they leave the office to go to their car? And he's hearing woman after woman talk about, well, I make sure I have my keys in my hand, that everything's locked up. The last thing I do is turn the lights off and I go straight to my car, get in, turn the car in and drive away. You know, all of these steps that they do to ensure personal safety. And he's realizing, hearing all of these stories, I have never once had to think about any of those things. I don't carry mace in my Mm. pocket. I don't have any type of... You know, I haven't taken any type of self-defense class or carry anything that could help me defend myself against someone trying to take advantage of me or overpower me. Um, I don't check my car, you know, for all of these different things. It's just he realized how much more women deal with and how unequal society is still for women because men have headship like soul headship, men have the upper hand and men have the power. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we need to strip men of all of their power, all of their leadership, all of their headship. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that at all. In Genesis, what is written about the partnership between Adam and Eve, the language there is actually a side-by-side equal partnership. Mm-hmm that within the fall and everything that's happened, how, how Genesis is written to explain why the patriarchy exists, I believe, is because of sin. But if we are actually people who are committed to seeing the restoration of Eden, we also have to see the restoration of that equal partnership between male and female. And when I was dating Shane, actually, he was loading a whole bunch of uh, wood into the boot of my car mm-hmm. so that I had firewood for my little place down in Mascot. Yeah. And I heard the Holy Spirit whisper to me, this is a suitable partner. Wow. And it was at that moment I knew that he was going to be a man that I walked next to and alongside of, hip to hip, just as Adam and Eve did, and not someone who would want to lord over me and not someone I would have to lead, that there would be an equal balance in our relationship. And that means we each bring our strengths, which are different, and our weaknesses that are different, and we balance each other out. But there is no 
there's no hovering over one another or or usurping or using power against or over. And that is what I see as equity for women in the church, in the workplace, and in the world. It is not that we we say, men, you have to have your power stripped from you. It is not that we hate men. I love men. I love what men bring to the table. I love male leadership. Mm. That's why I asked you as a man to come and lead that team. But I also love women and I love female leadership. And I believe that we need to see that walking alongside hip to hip, equal partnership happening more to actually benefit from the effects of that. I think that same study I was reading yesterday said that businesses double their success when they have a female on their board. Just having one. So Mm -hmm. imagine how much more success you could have if out of 10, five were women. Yeah. And that's, I'm sorry for the four men who might lose their position, <laughs> but if, if there are five women who are better at it than you are, then that's, they belong there. Yeah, and men yeah. stop riding on the fact that you got in cause you're a dude, you know? Yeah. Getting in male, male privilege, white privilege, this privilege and whatsoever. I like what you said. And, and when I listen to you all I hear mostly echoing in me is that we need to listen to each other more Mm. and listen with the intent to understand than the intent to respond right yes because to say 50 percent of the other all of a sudden some male some arrogant male privilege might jump to say oh so you want me to lose my own power and whatnot but that's not what you're saying Right, which is the same as when you speak of, let's say, decolonization. Many people are like, oh, so you're saying there's something wrong with white knowledge. And I'm like, that's not what has been said. Mm. You know, these things mean different things, but basically to listen to each other and then let's understand. Let's not listen with the intent to respond because responding is very dangerous if you don't understand what you're responding to. Yeah, and what, what a lot of people don't understand is that we're talking about an addition, not a subtraction. Yeah. We are talking about adding to what exists, not subtracting from. And yes, a natural consequence of equity is that people lose their position. Mm-hmm. I know that that you know I might, as a white person, lose a position to, to a, a person, person of color, color yeah. because of equity. But I'm actually okay with that because I'm passionate about diversity and equity, and I know that there is enough opportunity to go around. And I have lost opportunities to other white people. And what have I told myself in those instances? That that wasn't the opportunity for me and God has something better. Or God has, maybe if it's not better, God has something for me that is designed for me. I have a niche in this world. I fit in a place in this world. And so does every other person. And bringing equity to the table just means that we are erasing the social constructs that have kept those people down. We are erasing the bias. We are at least endeavoring to erase the bias that has kept women from being in leadership, has kept people of color from being in leadership. And sorry, guys, sorry, men who might lose a position, but there is position somewhere for you. It doesn't mean that your life is over. It doesn't mean that your world is over. It doesn't mean that we have stripped you of your power. You still have your power. You still have your knowledge. You still have who you are. It just means we have made room 
for other people. And, and the fact that people in power, the white people are saying, let's make room at the table, it means that white people still own the table. If you're the one saying, let's make room, yeah, it means you still have the majority over that table. And it, it's going to take time, guys, but I have faith and I, I actually believe that I have the energy and the fight within me to see equity for women um, and to see equity for all people happen. I mean, it would be so nice if it was in my lifetime, but if it's not, I hope we can make the world a better place for the next generation. Wow. Is that a good place to stop? Yeah. Thank you so much. Welcome. I love your heart, uh, the way you sort of articulate yourself. And I guess that's why I understood you from since from the jump, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to say, okay, uh, this is what we're dealing with. But at the same time, I get to see why you would shake a lot of boardrooms and why people wouldn't like having you in there. And at the same time, in all this conversation, I've, I've never asked you, are you a feminist or whatnot, but all I just pick up is an advocate of social justice. Yeah, 100%. Which I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks for sharing. Thanks. <laughs> it's, nice, uh, it's nice to be here. Right, yeah. right. Thank you. So that's Chelsea La Rosa. And thank you so much for choosing the Visions and Tones podcast. Go ye and be best human beings. Be best versions of yourselves. We'll check you next time. Cheers. Cheers.